Welcome to Foolproof Theology. My name is Chase Davis, and I am your host. It's great to be with you here today. This is going to be an episode where it's just me talking, so hopefully you can stand that for a few minutes today. We've had some great episodes recently, and I've been super busy traveling. Uh, we've had a staff retreat. I've got a conference coming up, went to another conference. Uh, and so I actually want to talk about that conference on this episode. Uh, and I, I want it to be helpful and instructive for pastors and for Christians. Um, and so the conference I attended was called National Conservatism. Um, I'm a PhD student, and I was awarded a scholarship to go. Um, and I was glad to go because I knew um, some people from my podcast that were going to be there. Megan Basham, William Wolf, James Wood, Time and Klein, uh, Stephen Wolf, and so Aaron Wren. I uh, had a lot of these people on the podcast already, and I thought it would be awesome opportunity to meet them. I really didn't know anything about national conservatism, and I'm actually going to call it NatCon, because that's what everybody calls it, uh, that attends the conference, NatCon. Um, I didn't know what it was until I read the the principles the, the that came out uh, within the last few months, Statement of Principles. Um, they released that. Um, I When I read these kind of statements or these... Uh, you know, these declarations, I tend to read them, you know, fairly charitably. I have friends that read most things cynically. You may think I'm one of those. I actually don't, you know, when I read stuff, I try to give the best reading possible first. Uh, but, um, but yeah, that's what I did with this. And then I got invited and I was glad to attend. It, it actually lined up with my wife and I's anniversary. So she got to come, didn't attend the conference. Of course, that's not her jam. Um, and this was a interesting conference. And I, so I want to share just a few thoughts from it first. The speakers that were Protestant were great. This was a, apparently there's been an emphasis for more Protestants to, uh, to participate. And so we had uh, Protestant panels. Um, Brad Littlejohn's talk on uh, on post-liberalism I thought was fantastic. Uh, you had Joe Rigney there, president of Bethlehem uh, Seminary, uh, guest on the podcast as well. He gave a great talk on the Tao, the uh, C.S. Lewis concept. I would go encourage you to listen to that. We had Al Mohler um, give a keynote speech. On uh, Tuesday night, I unfortunately had to leave. That was my wife and I's anniversary night, so we left that night, but I listened to it later. Great talk. Um, and so it, it was a big emphasis on having Protestants participate. Apparently, it was more Catholic and Jewish. Um, and really, you know, I think when people hear the idea of national conservatism, people hear, well, this is just another partisan, uh, you know, political thing. And there were politicians there. Uh, we had Ron DeSantis present, Josh Hawley present, some other politicians present. Um, but really, it's it's much more than um, some kind of political rally. Um, there are those, and you could go find one of those if you are interested in that. That is not what I'm interested in. I was interested in more academic uh, literature and discourse and conversations about Christianity and nationhood and what it looks like for those things to work uh, in tandem together. And so that's, that's why I went to the conference was to hear from these people who I've been listening to either on Twitter, through articles, and also to hear kind of like, what's the vision? I ran into some good friends. Uh, Yuri Brito was there. He, he prayed, uh, for one that kicked off one day, uh, with a prayer, great prayer. You can go listen to that too. Um, met another friend from, uh, Center for Cultural Leadership, uh, Jeff Rentrella with the Alliance Defending Freedom. That was great. Um, and so you had a lot of different figures there that, uh, that were just sharing ideas, networking, connecting, 
there were I'm sure there was a whole crew of people that were networking in the typical sense where you go to a conference and you're vying for a job or trying career advancement. That's not why I was there. I, I was asked to do uh, some podcast interviews. I just couldn't find it, uh, the technology available to do it. Um, that's not what I was there. I was just there to kind of hear talk, good talks and hear idea, good ideas put forward and to see disagreement. If there was disagreement put forward, I'll also hear that. And so that was kind of the concept. There were a lot of good Protestant content. You can go find it over on YouTube. A couple things I took away. One, um, this idea of post-liberalism. I, I read Patrick Deneen's uh, book um, on liberalism and kind of the failure of liberalism. And I read that a few years ago at the uh, suggestion of a friend, and that was really eye-opening for me. I think that's the first book that articulated a concern within American society particularly of how the left and right have both failed in their conceptions of promoting freedom and, and liberalism as a, as a concept. And so that, that was the first kind of uh, book to fall for me or, or uh, whatever you call it, card to fall. Uh, and that I listened to that, I read that, and I was like, yeah, like this makes sense. This is actually a critique that many evangelicals sense, that many Christian leaders sense, that there's problems on both left and right. Okay, so that was a that was a helpful way to look historically back at ways that classical liberalism has set up a scenario where there's irreconcilable differences based on con conceptions of human freedom, which are detached from virtue and religion. Okay, so that's that was kind of a big takeaway for me. Um, another big takeaway for me was uh, honestly Brad Littlejohn's talk was super. Uh, helpful for me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, he publishes an article over at American Reformer. I'll go put it in the show notes. You can go listen to that. But just on this concept and, and the need for post-liberal approaches to Christianity and the way it interacts with politics. Um, one of the biggest accusations that I, that I sense, and I don't know if anyone's articulated it like this, is that a lot of the NatCon Protestants are kind of LARPing pre-moderns. They're trying to get back to something that we can't get back to and pretending that we can get back to it. And so LARPing is, you know, you're pretending to be something that you're you're not actually. Um, and that's not what I sense. I sense some historical retrieval here. I sense some, in, uh, some good investigation of current structures that we've presumed to be inherently either uh, impervious uh, or to be inherently biblical. And so that's, that's one helpful talk that I would just go point your, go listen to that, go read that. Tell me what you think of it in the comments. Um, cause I'd love to hear what you think. Um, some other things I thought that were good, you know, there was, um, there was a commitment to the Bible and Christianity. Uh, which I think would surprise people. I think when many people think of this conference, um, they're going to think it's going to be openly political in the sense that it's going to be devoid of kind of like a commitment to God. And in, in like most of the content, it was assumed that we could talk about politics all day long, but if we don't have a commitment to scripture, to God's word, then that stuff won't work. So there's a presumed prior of the Bible. I, and I don't, I, you know, it baffles me when people make accusations 
about either NatCon or other things where it's like, well, they're just, they're just grasping for power or they're just, you know, just political. And it's like, that's not what this is. That's not at all what I heard. In fact, I heard a pox on both houses if they turn away from traditional marriage to the degree that either party or any kind of political movement turns away from biblical norms for God's world, they should not succeed. And we should not want conservatism as a concept to advance if it's not committed to the Bible. I, I really don't know how that's interpreted wrongly. If you interpret that badly, let me know. Um, but yeah, I found that deeply encouraging. This was in Joe Rigney's talk where, where he talked about that. Um, Yoram Hazani did a similar thing. He talked about uh, Christianity kind of being the bedrock and he's Jewish and he lives in America and he knows that Christianity is a historical norm for American society. And so, you know, these, anyone who wants to kind of paint this as kind of some openly political thing, I understand why that's just not what this is. Now you did have politics come, uh, po not politics, politicians like Rick Scott, Ron DeSantis, other politicians came and gave talks. Most of them bored me. Um, that's not a knock on them. They're just being politicians and they were giving basically their stump speeches. They were just, you know, kind of seeing what worked with this crowd. And I was bored out of my mind. I mean, I just felt it was like watching mainstream uh, media. Uh, DeSantis's talk was fun because I respect DeSantis and the way he's led, uh, you know, and I think he would be great. Um, but I still like, if you're a politician and you're presenting and that's the kind of stuff you're bringing, I'm a, I'm a little jaded on hearing a stump speech and that's what some of it felt like. We actually had one congressman from Colorado. That was fun to see him up there. And so uh, I did enjoy that just from a uh, connection point, just that he was there. But um, but yeah, the politician's speeches were not what I was there for. I was there to hang out with, uh, with friends who are like-minded, who are trying to explore and advance ideas which relate to Christianity and its relationship to this nation. Now, that, that gets into a critique. So I want to address two critiques from two people I respect. Um, one is from Peter Lightheart. So Peter Lightheart uh, kind of wrote an article called Against National Conservatism. Uh, I think that's what it was titled. And I think it was cleverly titled because he also wrote a book called Against Christianity. Um, and so I think he's trying to be consistent with that kind of ethos there. And in Lightheart's article, it's, I don't, necessarily want to do a full breakdown on the episode, but what he basically, uh, m you know, he, he affirms a lot about NatCon and what it's about, but his critique is more that it's too exclusive or, or at least that's how he reads it. That's how he interprets the movement is it's too exclusive and God's kingdom is global. And if we get too concerned with the, with the primacy of one country or the exclusivity of one country, to the disregard of others, we're in danger of making an idol out of the nation. I think that that would, I think if he heard that critique, he would probably go like, yes, that's fair. He may say it more intellectually because uh, he's smarter than me, but that would be probably his critique. Now, the the counterpoint to that is that NACON itself, that's not what it's, it's, it's saying that every country on every nation, we'll put it that way, every nation on the earth should desire to be, should be a Christian nation. We should want that as Christians. We should want Christian nations. That would be good. That would be better than not. Uh, given any alternative of what a nation could be, 
we should want Christian nations. And this, this gets into a critique I hear from a lot, from a lot of people on the concept of a Christian nation, because a lot of people are like, oh, you, you want forced conversion. That's not what this is. Or you want, uh, you want it to exclude other people. That's not what this is. We're talking about nations will be governed by a common set of values and commitments. Um, there will be at a national level, a sort of cult or cultus or, or worship or religion that shapes the ethos of that society. And for, you know, for a long time in America, we've been lured into this idea that we kind of live in this secular neutral public square. And that is the cult shaping America. And it has been shaping America for a hundred years. It's been shaping America for a long time. And so the argument isn't that, um, that we want the diminishment of other nations. It's an argument for what would it look like for Christianity to be the cult, so to speak, that shapes the common good of that nation. So that's kind of the counterpoint. It's like it's not it's not at the expense. And I think the other thing, and this is kind of light, and what I love about Lightheart. So like this is not a knock on his ideas or anything like that. This is just more of his critique is like the church should hold the primary the world should be shaped by the church and the nations are kind of a secondary thing. So it's like, um, the church should, should be not, ex not excluded. It should not have as deeply connected relationship with the state. Fair enough. Okay. Look, we're not looking for pastors to become the president. That's not the goal. Um, and, and honestly that critique matches up with a lot of his, his ecclesiology as well. So like, I'm not even that, bothered by that critique that makes sense and for what for the reasons i love lightheart's writing and how he advances the uh, the kind of like this this new ecumenicism um which he may hate that that's how i would describe it but it's very catholic in the sense of like he sees the ability for christianity to advance in a post-millennial sense past denominations and so the church is supposed to be this kind of uh bigger thing than a particular nation and it is. The church is bigger than particular nations. With that said, if the church was going to impact nations and their laws and how it's governed, what would that look like? And that's why the conference exists. So that's one critique I've seen is that we shouldn't get so either either concerned with politics, maybe putting it too crassly, but we shouldn't try to marry Christianity and politics and nationhood so closely. So that's one critique. The second critique comes from some other friends, Brian Matson, Andrew Sandlin. And it's kind of this idea, uh, the critique is this, classical liberalism is great and we shouldn't give in to illiberalism uh, because that's dehumanizing and not what Christianity is about. And so this critique goes like, classical liberalism is why America was founded. This idea of religious freedom, um, that people should have the freedom as individuals with their own conscience to make decisions on um, their religious uh, adherence and, you know, what they're going to do with their life. Um, there should be more of that. That's that there, there's historical weight behind that because part of the reason we didn't have a national church, unlike the uh, church of England was because there was this sense that like, we didn't want the state to be dictating religion. So that's one part of that critique. The other part of that critique has to do with respecting ind individuals and not coercing them. So coercion is a big deal. Uh, coercion just simply means we shouldn't want to coerce people into Christianity, meaning that we shouldn't want to either f the way the negative way to interpret it is we shouldn't want forced conversions and we shouldn't like uh, 
I'll give a practical example. I was, re- I was on vacation once and uh, they were talking about the Catholics coming over to uh, this country um, and they encountered the Aztecs. And the Aztecs, what they would do is they would slaughter women as a sacrifice. And so the Catholics said, you're going to stop doing that. And in some cases, the Catholics did forced conversions. If you're going, we're, we're going to be the rulers now. And if you're going to participate in our society, you're going to go to Catholic school. So like, that's not what, uh, I don't think that, no, that's not what people are advocating for when it comes to either Christian nationalism or other things like that. Um, and so coercion has a, what, what basically gets people here in their mind is you want people to convert to Christianity at the end of a sword. Like that's not the goal. That's not even like, that's not even on the table for any conversation I'm part of that. We want Christians to be made through force. No one is saying that. Like I can literally think of no one. Maybe there's somebody out there on Reddit or something like that. That's advocating for that. That's not what I'm advocating for. Um, and so that's a big concern here's, but here's kind of the flip side of it. Okay. So if that is the concern, I want to look at that word because what time inclined said in his talk at, uh, at NatCon, you go listen to that. It's great. Um, and he kind of has this term he uses and I've, I've tried it out a couple of times and it has a good ring to it. I'm a, I'm grew up in the Baptist church. It's alliterative. And so what he wants is cultural conditions conducive to conversion. Now, I don't think he uses the word coercion in that. Uh, he can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, cultural conduce, conditions conducive to conversion. What does that mean? It means that we should want people to grow up within cultural conditions, which at least give them a better shot at being converted. Okay. I don't think that that violates classical liberalism. Now, I'm not that smart. So, disagree with me, leave a comment, tell me if I'm wrong on that. But I don't see how that setting up cultural conditions conducive to conversion, meaning that if you want your child to become a Christian, you are going to set up a certain culture in your home and certain habits and rhythms in your life so that they are more likely to become a Christian. Now you may believe in, you know, paid baptism and you raise them in the church that way and you are setting up conditions for them to be converted and to experience heart regeneration. So, this is a common understanding if you're raising kids in a Christian home. The idea would be, can, should, and if so, what would it look like for nations to set up cultural conditions conducive to conversion for citizens of that nation? I think that's, I think that's where this gets played out. And it, I think it makes cl- people who are big fans of classical liberalism concerned, and I get the concern. It's not that I can't see the concern. They're concerned that, you know, the state's going to be dictating religious norms and all this kind of thing. That somehow we, you know, we're going to be violating people's consciences by making them do things. Um, And I would just say, look, law is pedagogical. Law teaches. When we, when we set up law, all, all legislation is inherently moral. And because it's inherently moral, it's morally suggestive and it's morally coercive. That's what law does. When any law in a society, when you are in a Muslim country and they have Muslim laws, they have Sharia law, it is instructive. Now we can, in America, we're not advocating for some kind of Sharia law. We're advocating for law based upon that grew out of natural law and, uh, and, and ways from God's word. So 
everyone knows that like, it's just intuitive. You go into different countries and they have laws and those laws shape how the culture goes. Okay. Given that is true, should Christians not want, uh, to some degree for the nations in which they live for the law to be advanced in order to set the stage for more Christians to, to be born again. Like I, I guess, I guess I just fail to see how that wouldn't be something we want. Now, classical, the critique of classical liberalism would go back to like, yeah, but like, we've got to be careful with it. Get it. Like, I hear that concern. Here's where I would push back a bit. The classical liberals, the people who are really committed to it. And on the worst of these is like David French. Um, and on the best of them is Andrew Sandlin, Brian Madsen. Um, and I'm friends with those guys, respect them immensely. But the critique is this. We are not living in a classical liberal culture anymore because the assumption is classical liberalism is great if you have a virtuous people. And ultimately, that virtuous people is going to be a Christian people. That's the most virtuous people you're going to have. But classical liberalism lives under the, the vestiges of Christendom and kind of a common Christian society where people were more virtuous, where debauchery, where there were blue laws, where there were all sorts of things that were held in check by a common commitment to Christianity as a social norm and social good. The assumption today is that that's not the same. We're not living in 1800 anymore. I like just timeline wise different 222 years removed. So given that times have changed, given that culture has changed because there's been cultural Marxist marching through the institutions and flipping things, given those kind of cultural conditions we find ourselves in, should we not at least be willing to question whether the assumptions of classical liberalism can still preserve the freedoms that classical liberalism seeks to promote. That's not trying to go unvirtuous in order to achieve virtue. It's not trying to go illiberal in order to achieve classical liberalism. It's simply asking the question, look, given that we live in a culture that is the way it is, that's promoting, I mean, California, for God's sakes, they're, you know, they're willing to be an abortion kind of sanctuary state. They're willing to have kids from other states come and chop off their genitalia. Like, we, that's the world we live in. You get Roanoke, Texas. You get Charlotte, uh, North Carolina, where they're doing drag queen, you know, drag queens at bars. And you've got kids putting dollar bills, uh, giving them to them. That, that's what we live in now. Is classical liberalism still sustainable given that we live in such an unvirtuous society? I think it's a good thing. I think classical liberalism it would be great and has been great. But should we not question whether classical liberalism is the kind of gold standard that we've been led to believe? I think a lot of this, and I talked with one of my older friends, I think a lot of this may come to, down to generational differences. I'm millennial. A lot of the people who love classical liberalism as a concept uh, and are still kind of married to it as the biblical thing, as the, the only Christian way of a, that a society can flourish, seem to be of an older generation. And that's fine. That's not a knock on them uh, because of they're old or anything like that. But I am saying there's something in the water with people my age and younger and people in my church and people in my culture where they're starting to question the very uh, 
longevity and durability of classical liberalism as something that can prevent their kids from living through a civil war and a cultural revolution. I think that's where the rubber meets the road. Is this classical liberalism may be great under Christendom, but is it durable enough to endure a cultural revolution or can it even stop a cultural revolution from coming upon it? And so that's, that's where to use a reductio ad absurdum, that's where like the, that's the end point because they desire to have this cultural Marxism take over. And there's a lot of pushback. Thank God. Okay. But we should be, that should lead us to have questions about what it means to advance Christianity, uh, what it means to promote Christianity. And I get that there are cautions with the state being in charge of some kind of state church. I get that. Like I'm studying that. So I, I, I understand it. I just, these are questions worth exploring. And that's why I went to this conference. And I think this conference actually does a great job of exploring these topics. So I would encourage you to go listen to the talks, uh, particularly the Protestant panels. Those are the ones I went to. Um, Joe Rigney, Al Muller, listen to those talks. Um, they can probably articulate these ideas much better than I can in a 25, 30 minute episode. Um, if you're looking for just a partisan political stuff, you, you can probably find some talks at this conference that were that, but most of them are very, uh, very sober. I'll put it that way. Um, and so, yeah, let me know what you think. If you disagree, comment, tell me why. Let's see if we can get a dialogue started. Share this episode with a friend who's still kind of either in the promoting classical liberalism contra uh, post-liberalism. And if all of this makes no sense to you, just go listen to Joe Rigney's talk because it was fantastic. Thanks for tuning in today. Uh, hopefully we'll have a guest on next time. And you can always sign up for more episodes. Um, I am releasing a special episode for patrons only on my patron. Uh, it's going to be discussing Acts 29, Matt Chandler, in the situation at the Village Church. And the only way to get access is for you to subscribe on my Patreon to get access to that. So I'll drop a link to the show notes in the show notes for that. Sign up there, and I'll see you next time.